Tonight, as Alan said, we're going to be talking about exile. And just a quick show of hands, you can close your eyes if you want to. How many people have any idea what the exile is, how it functions? You don't have to explain what you think it is, but, but just, you know, how does it function in the biblical narrative? If you think you have an idea, raise your hand. So, you know, maybe, maybe half of us. Okay. Um, the exile confession, I am in my second year of seminary, and while I knew that the exile was something important in the Bible... Uh, before going to seminary, I really didn't know what it was. I just knew that it was, it was there. And at one point, I was doing a, a teaching series on kind of the arc of the whole biblical narrative. And I just kind of skipped the prophets. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like it started with creation and talked about the call of Abraham and some of the, some of the history that you get in, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And then I just kind of skipped that whole next part and moved on to Jesus. Um, I think I might have nodded to the prophets, you know, and said, yeah, the prophets, right. They came and they talked about how we were doing stuff wrong. Um, But the exile is this really, really significant event in the history of the people of God, and it's a significant event in in our life as Christians. Um, And and it's also just a really confusing one. Um, One of the things, if I've learned one thing from writing this sermon, it's that the Bible doesn't really care all that much about what we call right belief or orthodoxy. Um, the authors of different books often have wildly different ideas about how God interacts with humanity and specifically about how God interacts with this chosen people, Israel. Um, and within many standalone books, theological tension and even conflict is, is preserved so that God finally remains mysterious, even if we are absolutely certain of God's presence. Um, Jeremiah as a book, and, and really the historical event of exile in general highlights the elusive nature of this God, Yahweh, to the point that many biblical scholars who are incredibly well-respected have concluded that the book of Jeremiah is literally impossible to make sense of. That is, in theological commentaries, that the book is impossible to make sense of. <clears throat> We are, we are going to do our best to make some sense of it and maintain that there is mystery in it as well. Um, but one of the ways that we do this with books of the Bible that are very distant is that we try our best to learn about the context into which that book came. Um, so Jeremiah happened, or not Jeremiah, exile happened at a, at a specific point in the history of Israel, and we will probably understand exile better if we know a little bit about that point in history as well as knowing where it falls in the arc of God's story that we have in our Bible. So we're going to recap a little bit. This whole series has been pulling us through the narrative of the Old Testament. Um, And recapping and filling in the gaps, you remember Yahweh, uh, back in Genesis 12, calls Abraham out of stuckness, um, the stuckness of humanity, and, and he calls him to give a blessing to all of the families of the earth and a future and a hope. And it's through Abraham's offspring that this is supposed to happen. Well, Abraham has a barren wife, but miraculously, they have kids who miraculously have kids. And these kids of kids of kids eventually become a people. But they're not... Oh, wait, I forgot about a really important fun part here. I'm going to control the PowerPoint from my phone. I forgot about that. So... Here is the history, maybe. There we go. And there's Abraham. <clears throat> so Yahweh calls Abraham, um, and, and he tells him to go to this new land. And Abraham had been stuck, but, 
But Yahweh has a future for Abraham. And so he does. Um, And they have kids, and those kids become the people, the chosen people of Yahweh. But somehow circumstances end them up in Egypt rather than in the land that God has promised for them, um, where they are God's slaves. I mean, not God's slaves. Egypt's slaves, Pharaoh's slaves. Um, so something's off here. God has this plan, but something is, is off about it. Um, but, but God's plan will not fail. God hears the cry of these chosen people, and he raises up Moses. You remember, Rebecca talked about this. Raises up Moses to deliver those people from the oppression that, uh, at the hand of Pharaoh. But after wandering around lost in the wilderness for 40 years the legendary leader Moses dies within sight of the ever-elusive promised land. But God's plan will not fail. In an ethically problematic scene, the Israelites, uh, allegedly with the help and by the hand of God, wipe out the inhabitants of Canaan and settle for themselves in the land which God had promised. At first, recognizing that Yahweh is their one and only king, they're ruled by judges. We see that in the biblical book, Judges. But eventually, the Israelites start to notice that all of the big, important nations around them have kings, and so they decide that they want a king as well. Still, God's plan will not fail. Saul, David, Solomon, the comfort and the prosperity of Abraham's offspring grows and grows and grows until it becomes the source of Israel's identity and security and hope. Israel, in her free gift of land and blessing, is progressively looking less and less like the poor people God saved and more and more like the powerful people they needed to be saved from. They raise up shrewd political figures and start jockeying for prominent positions within the expanding power structures, all the while hidden in the shadows of the little monarchy's big temple are the poor among them, the alien and the widow and the orphan. The very people that they have been commanded to care for, the very people that they themselves used to be, Now, keeping all of that in mind, listen to this law code from Exodus 22 that God's people most certainly would have known. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor, you shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down, for it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as a cover. In what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. Well, someone must have cried out. And just as God heard when Israel cried out as the poor among the Egyptians, so too does God hear when the poor among the chosen people cry. For 
as we see in Exodus, God's people are always the poor among us. God's plan will not fail, but Israel, if she wants to continue to be a part of it, will have to cooperate with the plan. And Yahweh does everything in God's power to jog the memory of these formerly homeless, formerly landless slaves and aliens to remind them of the plan, blessing for all the families of the earth, particularly those families most in need of it. God sends prophets to remind Israel of the plan, but Israel won't hear them. This is my fun graphic here. The prophets are fiery, so... They won't hear Amos or Micah. And the already divided kingdom starts to crumble. They send more prophets, and the Israelites won't hear Isaiah. And the geopolitical situation gets worse. And finally, Jeremiah shows up. Jeremiah is one of these unfortunate souls who is commissioned to tell us everything that we don't want to hear. Um, that God has in store for Israel even more terrible things than Egypt had suffered 600 years earlier. That exile is coming. At first, we don't believe Jeremiah. He's just, he's just kind of this crazy kid yelling in the street. But we are the chosen people. We are the royal family. We are the bearers of divine favor and blessing, surely God would never allow this terrible thing to happen to us. But then off in the distance, there's a faint noise, the sound of battle horses, the ground beneath our feet starts to quake with the approach of the massive Babylonian army, and Jeremiah's words begin to sink into our consciousness. And finally, we have reached our text for today. Listen now to the word of God. I'm going to have to go through a few of these. This comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8, starting at verse 14. And we'll follow through uh, to chapter 9, verse 3. Why do we sit still? Gather together, let us go into the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We look for peace but find no good for a time of healing, but there is terror instead. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it the city, and those who live in it. See, I am letting snakes loose among you, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Lord. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark, the cry of my poor people from wide and far in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past and the summer is ended and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? 
Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers and a band of traitors. They bend their tongues like bows. They have grown strong in the land for falsehood and not for truth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I opened my Bible, but then I realized I needed to be looking at this. So we'll just pretend I read out of that guy. In this text, what has happened to God's plan? Is this really a story of God giving up on Israel? Have they strayed too far and exceeded the grace of Yahweh? And if so, what do we do with that as people whose history doesn't look all that different? There's a fairly recent article by a a scholar named Robert Ginch that draws upon the implications uh, of Jeremiah's theology for us today. And in it he says this, As a nation, Americans have often assumed that God has especially blessed our way of life. And as a result, we have pursued imperialist ventures in far-flung places around the globe. We have ignored the plight of the poor and the immigrant in our midst. We have abused the planet and now face the threat of global warming. Our ancestors believed that it was our manifest destiny to be a city on a hill and a light to all nations, but we are now despised in many parts of the globe. There is a great temptation, I think, um, as people who have the rest of the story, and particularly as Christians, to downplay the significance of texts like this one in light of the whole Jesus event or because we know that the Old Testament doesn't end in exile, but as we will hear next week, uh, the community is eventually restored to its land. Rebecca's going to talk a little bit about that next week. Um, And assuming that we tell that story honestly, the restoration to the land, while it is a wonderful thing, it's not bringing the people of Israel back into the same land that David and Solomon ruled. It's a very different thing. Um, And so... Jeremiah is pointing us to a reality that the glory days of Israel are over. That's just the truth of it. Um, We do ourselves a disservice if we ignore the facts of this story. And namely, the facts being that God doesn't deliver Israel from the Babylonian onslaught. Even worse, God is understood in this story to be the actor And mighty Babylon is merely the sword, God's weapon of choice against these formerly chosen people. In another recent commentary, Stephen Reed makes a stinging observation. He says, this idea that it's too late for redemption, too late for a miracle or for something, is one of the most difficult messages for readers to hear. North American optimism rehearses what he calls a meta-narrative, which is just a big story, that presumes that there is always a second chance for a happy ending. But in the book of Jeremiah, at least in the first 25 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, the chances have simply run out. 
And the land that had been given to Abraham as a gift now exists only as a tomb for Abraham's offspring. And so the people of Israel, upon realizing this, they cry out again, maybe like they cried out in in Egypt, but they're crying from a different situation this time. They are resigned to their inescapable fate, and yet still they are baffled at the apparent unwillingness of God to step in as he always has in in the past. Is the Lord not in the temple? Is our king not in Israel? At the same time, God seems to be equally baffled at Israel. He says, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark the cry of my poor people. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is our king not in here? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past and the summer is ended and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. Why has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Four times in five verses, God calls Israel my poor people. Now, this runs the risk of coming off as a little bit cliche, but there's a great book by Frederick Beekner called Now and Then, and he's talking about his kind of path of vocation. And, and in this book, at one point, Beekner is reflecting on um, the helpless kind of yearning and heart sickness of a parent over his or her child. And I'm just going to read a, a brief section from that. To love another as you love a child is to become vulnerable in a whole new way. It is no longer only through what happens to yourself that the world can hurt you, but through what happens to the one you love also. And greatly more hurting. When it comes to your own hurt, there are always things you can do. You can put up a brave front for one. And behind that front, if you're lucky, if you persist, you can become a little brave inside yourself. You can become strong in the broken places, as Hemingway said. You can become philosophical, recognizing how much of your troubles you have brought down on your own head and resolving to do better by yourself in the future. But when it comes to the hurt of your child, the one you love, you are all but helpless. The child makes terrible mistakes, and there is very little you can do to ease his pain, especially when you are so often a part of his pain, as the child is a part of yours. There is no way to make him strong with such strengths as you may have found through your own hurt, or wise enough through such wisdom. And even if there were, it would be the wrong way, because it would be your way and not his. The child's pain becomes your pain, and as the innocent bystander, maybe, it is even a worse pain for you. In the long run, even the bravest front is not much use. This little reflection, I think, can allow us to empathize with God, to enter into God's pathos and to feel what God feels. Now, this may be a bit of a caricature, caricature but if you, uh, have you ever noticed that, that when a mother hears of the suffering of her son, particularly if there's nothing that she can do to relieve that suffering, one of the more common responses that she may give is to exclaim, my poor baby, even if her son is 47 years old. <clears throat> now, there is something about knowing the suffering of a loved one that evokes memories. Memories of a time when that person was safe and healthy 
because I was able to care for her. Memories of a time when that person was innocent because he had no control over his circumstances. Memories of a time when my grown-up child, who is now subject to the harsh temptations and consequences of a grown-up world, was my poor baby. Well, it is for the hurt of my poor people that Yahweh hurts, and for the slain of my poor people that Yahweh desires to weep. At one time, they were indeed God's poor people, totally dependent on the existence and the provision of their God, but that time is past, and God's formerly poor people are now oppressing the poor among them. Israel, as God's poor people, is no longer anything more than a memory in the mind of their God. Four times in five verses, though, is a pretty persistent memory. And as a general rule of Bible reading, when something is repeated over and over and over, you can really bet the farm that the author wants you to notice it. Um, Israel in this passage is, is poor because they're about to be destroyed by the Babylonians, but they are also poor because God remembers Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. Crying out to the Lord to deliver them into their promised land. Israel, in God's memory, even in this terrible time, is still my poor people. Now, there are times when all that is left of God's promised future is the memory of God's poor people. The story of the exile allows us to hope, even in the face of sin and death, that though we deny it and betray the title, we survive in God's memory as my poor people. Now, you may be thinking, as I almost certainly would if I didn't write this, that you don't particularly want to be anybody's poor people. We are perfectly happy being wealthy or at least being comfortable. The problem, as I see it in the story, though, and in my own life and in the life of the church, is that comfort has a tendency to become this kind of a drug. And it's a drug that can take away our capacity for memory. Comfort can convince us that our memories aren't as nice as our present until we forget who we have been. And when we forget who we have been, we lose who we are. When Israel forgets Egypt, for instance, they cease to be Israel and they become Egypt. And God cannot use us when we insist on working against God's plan. Now, Jesus, in Luke's gospel, would later quote another prophet to communicate this plan again. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's plan will not fail, and even if we don't remember it, God does. There are almost certainly people in this room whose memories evoke so much pain that you cannot fathom actually making an effort to remember them. Even when you are not able, I want you to know that God remembers for you. There are also people in this room whose story, to this point, 
might not include much of Egypt or of the wilderness or of exile. For you also know that as heirs with Christ, Israel's story is our story. And even when we may forget it or have failed to learn it in the first place, God remembers for us. God's plan will not fail. And if we spend our lives opposing God's purposes, we too will experience exile. Our places of worship will lay void and empty. And if you know a lot about what's going on in the church in America right now, or you know what happened to the church in Europe, this isn't a far-flung reality. Our God-given land will come under the authority of some other people, and our precious relationships that we really do care for will start dividing over transient things. And our lives, our very lives, will be lost, a people without a God. Now, I was hoping to ask Joel about this. Um, Rebecca's husband is an Old Testament scholar, so is he in here? No? Okay, good. I'm safe. <clears throat> this, <laughs> he's on the playground. Um, I am 95% confident of the claim that I'm about to make, so I'm just, that's, the, that's the warning here. Um, and so you know... The dating of books in the Bible is just, you know, to some degree, it's a guessing game, but it's, a, it's an educated guessing game. And so I did a little bit of research on this. Do you want to know what happened in the 50 years of exile? A large number of the books that we have in our Bible were either written or compiled together. Most of the books that are in the Old Testament were compiled or written by exiled Jews that we might remember as God remembers. So let us never forget our poverty and God's unshakable desire to save all of God's people. Thanks be to God.